Welcome uh, to another expert conversation run by UNESCO's Policy Lab, which I hope you will find interesting. This is part of our expert series focusing on the post-COVID reset, as the phrase goes. And of course, uh, as UNESCO, as a member agency of the UN system, we are very concerned to ensure that the reset goes along an equitable and inclusive path. As always with these podcasts, we'll be having a conversation today around on the one hand, concrete policy measures that are seen by our experts as being conducive to a recovery that is, in that sense, equitable and inclusive. And on the other hand, the data and the knowledge that we should um, be using or paying attention to to inform the policy shifts. Our um, expert today uh, in this podcast is Yuna Marineshko. Hello, Yuna. Thank you for Hello. joining us. Uh, Yuna is an assistant professor in the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's also a, a faculty research fellow at the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research. And among other topics, her research interests include universal basic income, unemployment insurance, and the politics of carbon tax. And these three areas of expertise will be key to our discussion today. Um, what I'd like to do, uh, Yona, if you agree, is start with uh, the universal basic income and beyond. Um, for a long time, as many of our audience will know, there have been discussions about universal basic income, starting indeed among philosophers and then moving to economists, sociologists and others um, already 30 years ago or more. Um, but it remained for many years a fringe policy idea. And COVID-19 has changed that. Before COVID-19, again, as many in the audience will know, automation and the replacement of jobs due to um, new modes of organization of work were pushing many, even in policy communities, towards the idea of considering universal basic income as a way of redistributing the risks and benefits of the transition uh, to um, a different kind of more automated economy in a fairer way. And this is the angle, the angle of inclusive and equitable post-COVID recovery in light of the earlier um, debates about universal basic income that we would like uh, to discuss it uh, with you. So my first question would be, do you see UBI, universal basic income, as really holding the promise of greater equity? So, you know, universal basic income, as you mentioned, is an old idea historically, but has only recently come to prominence. And it's also fun for me to say that actually my background is in economics and philosophy, and I almost did a PhD in philosophy on theories of justice and equity. So I guess, you know, this all makes a lot of sense. Um, as for reading in the early 1990s, um, and perhaps we have the same experience, um, the book by Philippe Van Parijs on that issue, which um, I think set the terms of the debate, particularly in Europe during that period. It was picked up right. by a lot of people. The idea of universal basic income in the post-COVID world. So I think one of the things that has changed with COVID is just so many people losing their jobs and also the opportunity to do their jobs because a lot of sectors, at least for a while, in many countries were closed because there were high contact sectors and countries didn't want to uh, have an increased um, 
diffusion of COVID-19. So for example, bars uh, in the US or in France were closed um, and uh, you know, many other businesses of that, of that sort. And so people who were bartender, right? They not only they might have lost their jobs, but they couldn't even go somewhere else to do their job because everything was closed. And so I think that that just highlighted for everybody um, the amount of economic insecurity that people face in a brand new way because it was so vast and so visible and so clear. And also it's it's the kind of phenomenon that is coming to hit you like a comet from the outside. And it's clear that it's not anybody's fault that COVID-19 came around. I mean, we might debate then the policy response, et cetera. But you know, this is a phenomenon, like a natural disaster. It comes on, it threatens our economic security. And I think that for a lot of people that creates an interest and motivation in thinking about how we're going to address situations like this. How can we provide economic security in a case like this when many people all of a sudden might have a drastic cut in their incomes? So effectively, responses were improvised in response to everything you described. And some of those responses look a bit like not maybe exactly a universal basic income, but at least some kind of unconditional income support scheme that shares some of the features um, under very different names and in very different uh, policy frameworks, of course. Um, but the emergency response is one thing. Do you see this as having some potential to change the picture with respect to social protection even beyond the pandemic period? Or is it best analyzed as just a series of emergency solutions that will quickly be forgotten? Right. So to talk about this, I think the example of U.S. policy is quite enlightening, and then we can broaden to other countries. So in the U.S., uh, prior to the COVID crisis, we have had a primary election uh, contest for the presidential election. And on the Democratic side, which is the left-leaning party in the US, one of the candidates, their main platform was universal basic income. This candidate, Andrew Yang, unexpectedly was really quite popular. Of course, he didn't end up winning the primary, but he made a lot of noise for the universal basic income and became much more well-known in the US. And then with the COVID crisis, they passed the so-called CARES Act, and that included a check, unconditional cash, for every American $1,200. Was, there was an income cap, but it was such that only 10% of the highest income people didn't receive it. So 90% of people received this transfer. So it's very much like very close to a short-term universal basic income. No conditions whatsoever. As long as your income is below you know, the top 10%, you get it, no questions asked. And I, and I think this was extremely popular. And in fact, what's interesting is that right now in the US, they are negotiating on potentially a second round of stimulus. And the first thing that the two parties could agree on, one of the first things is to do another round of this stimulus check, because it's just so popular uh, for people to obtain that. And to me, it's also quite interesting that both parties see the benefit in doing that. Certainly for the short run, it seems politically expedient, meaning that there's probably a demand from the public uh, to have a check like that. And that's because, again, there's a lot of economic insecurity. Many people have lost income, have lost their jobs, or are forced to work fewer hours. There's that too, we have to remember, therefore bringing in lower income. 
And so, you know, in the U.S. at the moment, uh, I think it's fair to say that there's broad support for uh, stimulus uh, money, unconditional money, for now. And so then the question is, will it continue? But I do think that it kind of changes the conversation, because especially in the U.S., and that's a country that has one of the less protective, you know, social protection systems among rich countries, um, there are a lot of people who would fall through the cracks. And the COVID crisis really has exposed that. And so this might uh, create a precedent and a higher demand for a more universal system of social protection than we used to have. It's hard to predict where it's going to go, but I do think that it's a critical moment in getting the public to think about holes, essentially, in the U.S.'s uh, social protection system. Thanks. Uh, and I agree that we're not looking for crystal balls here. There are a lot of political uncertainties still to be resolved, including uh, the path of the pandemic itself, which uh, we know very little about looking forward. Um, but perhaps putting aside predictions and focusing more on the meaning of uh, the universal basic income, as, as you said, there are it, it can go in two directions, which are not completely incompatible, particularly in an emergency situation, but are still quite different. And I'm thinking here back to the debate uh, during the French president's presidential election of 2017, for instance, where one of the candidates, Benoit Hamon, uh, was uh, proposing a form of the universal basic income uh, that proved highly unpopular, um, in particular within his own party. Uh, because there are two ways of interpreting the universal basic income. One is as a kind of technical fix for the inability of social protection to reach everyone. So it's a kind of administrative measure. Um, means testing and targeting and so on are administratively demanding and not necessarily very effective. If you replace you can actually save a lot of money on administrative costs and achieve a better social outcome. But it's still an outcome that essentially stabilizes the system as it is and in particular subsidizes low wages. That's the first sort of critical angle, which was very common before the pandemic and presumably will come back after the pandemic. And then there's the, the other option, which is to see the universal basic income as a whole new idea of citizenship, which is very common in the theoretical literature, uh, seeing the very idea of receiving an unconditional payment simply for being a citizen as a way of expressing differently the organization of a political community, shall we say, looking back to the kinds of theoretical uh, literature on this subject from the 1990s. Now, clearly, the world doesn't divide neatly into theoretical boxes. But still, um, if you had to make a judgment as to the more likely tendency or the dominant tendency, would you see universal basic income as being more administrative fine-tuning of social protection or more reinvention of citizenship? either descriptively or in terms of what you think should be the case, of course. So I think today the, the thinking is more towards the second a reinvention of citizenship, a new conception of freedom and equality. Um, and again, you can see that partly in uh, the U.S. Um, context where the presidential primary candidate Andrew Yang called the, his universal basic income, what did he call it? The freedom dividend. So this is highly symbolic. It's, it's not about a technical fix. It's about a new notion of enabling everybody 
to have the financial freedom to pursue whatever goals that they might want to pursue. And, and so that's uh, very consistent, for example, with uh, Rawlsian vision, you know, philosophically, where we're thinking about providing everybody the means, no matter what they wish to do in life, that they have the means to be able to achieve that. And of course, income is one of the basic ways in which you're able to achieve your goals. So this idea of the freedom dividend is the freedom to do what you want. And the, it connects to the idea of unconditional cash as well. And we have to remember that. Not only it's cash, so you can spend it on whatever, but because it comes without conditions, it in some way symbolizes freedom better than conditional cash. So I do think that this um, new idea around uh, you know, uh, income security and freedom at the same time uh, is quite uh, quite important, um, as well as equality, obviously, because everybody gets the same uh, the same amount. I think today the technical fix um, aspect, while I personally think is important and good to keep in mind. Of course, I'm a labor economist, so and a public finance expert. So for me, this aspect, this technical aspect, is actually quite important, but. In the public discourse, uh, I think that has very little to do with the popularity of the idea. It's more about the symbolism uh, and the concept of bringing uh, equality and freedom for all, rather than, hey, you know, let's tweak our social protection system uh, to make it better. Thanks. Um, and of course, that immediately leads to some follow-up questions. If it was just a tweak, we could probably end there and move to another topic. But if it's a genuine reset, then the question arises, what else needs to be reset in order to be coherent with that particular reset? One obvious um, comment from a UNESCO perspective is the importance of education in this context. Again, going back to political philosophy, if you want people to be free to do what they want and also want them to have the opportunity to want valuable things, then you're talking about an approach to education, which resembles very much the approach of John Stuart Mill or of John Dewey. Um, and clearly, current educational systems don't quite provide that to everyone. Um, so you could ask the question, what kind of educational policy changes are needed to be consistent uh, with uh, UBI? And there could also be other questions, perhaps connected more to the pandemic, for instance, about, um, about the labor market or about uh, health. Um, what else needs to change for that vision of UBI as a lever for citizenship to become effective? Right. So, you know, there are many aspects, of course, in people's lives that it's not just about having income. And one of the, them that you just mentioned in your prior question is about work. Um, and, they, you know, many policymakers are looking to uh, create jobs. Um, and, you know, one of the arguments against UBI that you mentioned is that it subsidizes low wages. Well, I want to push back on this because, in fact, the theory predicts the opposite. Uh, since you receive a universal basic income, no matter whether you work or not, what, the way we look at this in economics, think of it as this increases your outside option, we call it, meaning if you didn't work, then what could you fall back on? So the higher your UBI, and if you decide not to work because this job is crap, it's not paying enough for maybe it's exposing you to COVID and it's just not paying you enough. Well, then you're like, forget it. I'm not working at this job. Uh, maybe I'm going to look for another better job or just wait it out until I find something better. 
And that is actually going to push wages up, not down. And that's a huge difference with a system that is known as workfare, where we only give you uh, money if you work. Now, that sort of system has the opposite effect because it forces people to take a job, any job, so that they can receive aid. And that, on balance, shifts the you know, uh, economic situation in favor of firms who can potentially underpay people, but certainly pay them less because everybody's desperate to get And that's not the case with UBI because you don't have to have a job uh, in order to receive it. So that I just wanted to make sure to clarify that. Another aspect where UBI is, is useful is that, in fact, we have seen some evidence that uh, UBI, so universal basic income, is cash in people's hands. And people tend to spend this cash, especially lower income people, but in fact, it's true across the distribution. And that, in fact, creates jobs. So it's sort of quite interesting that this policy, which on the face of it is about economic security, uh, can also have an economic stimulus effect uh, on the economy and uh, and create jobs. So as such, I think the, the basic income is rather a favorable tool in terms of the jobs aspect uh, for two reasons. First is that it can increase wages by increases work, increasing workers outside options. So, you know, allowing them to wait longer until they find a better job. Uh, and on top of that, it creates demand for workers. Now, this is, you know, so this is something that's important to realize. But you were talking also about other policies that might be complementary with uh, basic income. And I think the fundamental question there is how much of a free marketer are you? And there's a whole spectrum of people who might have different views. On the one extreme are liber libertarians who are for basic income. And for them, basic income uh, should be not too high, but high enough that you can not only, you know, pay for food and shelter, but also buy like education and so on in the private market. So, you know, if you have a very market driven uh, notion of things, you want to privatize most services, maybe not all, but most, and then the basic income will allow you to buy whatever it is that you want. So that's sort of one, one extreme. And, and then, you know, you have all the gradation and the question becomes, well, which other services, if we do want to have some public services, which other services would be valuable um, in combination with, uh, with basic income? And for example, most economists today think that something like health insurance cannot be replaced with basic income. That is such a fundamental, health coverage is so fundamental, and it is such an issue if people are not perhaps choose not to cover themselves, that we can't allow that to happen. We got to make sure that everybody has health care. Uh, and interestingly, you know, this is, uh, including among economists, this is the majority opinion, that if they were a basic income, one thing that we need to keep is health care. Uh, and I think, of course, today with COVID, it's particularly important to have that. Thank you very much. Maybe a, a final um, comment on that set of issues. Uh, which is obviously a politically very controversial one, is the connection between uh, everything you've been discussing and international labor migration. Um, there have been obviously studies over the years, many studies, on the relation between migration and uh, labor markets, uh, showing in particular that uh, wage depression was uh, actually a rather unusual effect of migration, only in uh, certain very special circumstances and certainly not a general principle. 
Um, are you aware of any studies, or would you like to speculate on, on theoretical grounds, on how a hypothetical universal basic income scheme, as you described it, with positive effects on uh, wage levels, uh, would connect to the reality of international labor migration? So, you know, that's quite an interesting issue to think about, and I don't think we know a lot about it, but one example is my own work looking at Alaska in the U.S. Alaska has a kind of universal basic income where people once a year receive a sum of cash without any conditions. And we have looked at, with my co-author, Damon Jones at the University of Chicago, we have looked into the effects of this program. And one of the things you worry about is that perhaps it would attract more people to Alaska so that they can uh, receive the benefit. And in fact, we didn't find any evidence for that. Now, you know, it's one particular it case. <laughs> it may not generalize, but so in that particular case, we didn't see, you know, after they instituted that, we didn't see any clear pattern of people, uh, people coming in. Uh, but uh, if indeed uh, a universal basic income increases wages, plus there's the basic income itself, that would likely, at least in theory, make it very attractive for migrants to go where there's a universal basic income. And so at that point, this is something that, uh, you know, would have to be managed. As you said, you know, most of the evidence shows there's no adverse effect on wages from having more migrants. But, you know, it's certainly a little bit uncharted territory, and this is something that would need to be thought about. Thank you very much, Iona. Uh, I'd, I'd like um, to discuss with you the question of financing universal basic income. Uh, in a separate podcast, we've discussed general issues about universal basic income, but one of the classic objections to it uh, is that it is unaffordable. And of course, there's a lot of literature on this denying that it's unaffordable and indeed showing uh, a range of possible ways uh, in which it could be funded uh, sustainably. Um, would, would you like to give us uh, an overview of what you think about this issue and perhaps particularly tell us about uh, how you've considered the carbon tax as a possible uh, funding basis for a universal basic income? Right. So first, before I delve into actual mechanisms, I think I, I want to make a conceptual point about what's at stake here. So the, the number one point is the higher the level of the basic income, and the higher the financing needs. And so if you're going to start with something not too ambitious as far as level, perhaps as a transition phase, it's much easier to, to pull off uh, than having a very large uh, basic income. So that's number one. It's important to keep in mind, well, how much you're going to give uh, in terms of your uh, amount of the basic income. Second, you there, yeah. sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I think this is a really important question which takes us back again um, as discussed in, on a previous occasion to the French presidential uh, campaign of 2017. Um, if, for the sake of argument, you say we need symbolically to introduce UBI, but we can only afford it at, a, at an infra-subsistence level, but we're going to do it anyway because we need to make the point, and then it will increase over time, and you introduce it at, say, 20% uh, of the poverty line, random figure, um, which was the kind of thing that was being discussed in France uh, back then. Um, is that still beneficial, or do you lose all the practical benefits just for the sake of a, a rather pointless symbol? So 
I personally think that that's still beneficial because a lot of policies, you know, have had a kind of gradual ramp up. One example uh, in the U.S. is the earned income tax credit. It started relatively small. So this is a credit that people who uh, are poor and work, they get extra money from the government that top up their wages. This program started quite small and has been increased tremendously over time, just as one, uh, one example. So you could see something similar uh, going on with uh, universal basic income. And you know, once people start receiving the cash, they might have a different view and feeling towards said cash. And it might be easier then to uh, gather the political support to uh, change things so that it can be financed. Because no matter what you choose, you know, drastic changes for a, a large universal basic income that's at subsistence level. There are several options and you could combine them. But no matter what, it will enable pretty massive changes to finances. And you have to have the public support behind in a democracy to push for that. And that's where starting small could be helpful by demonstrating to people the benefits of the program and potentially a building momentum uh, for increasing it. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's a very clear answer. I distracted you from what you were going to discuss, which yes. is how um, a mechanism such as a carbon tax could provide right. the kind of financial basis. So financing options, broadly speaking, there are two categories. One is uh, cuts in existing programs that perhaps overlap or would be redundant uh, with UBI. And of course, the more you're a pro-free market uh, kind of uh, person, the more you see that as an appealing way to finance a, a UBI. And the more you're progressive, usually you don't want to replace maybe not anything, but most things. Uh, and so that's that's one. So you could cut some benefits and, re and you know use that to finance the UBI. Uh, the other option, of course, is to increase revenue. Um, and there's many ways of doing that. And one of the, the ones that I think is perhaps the most elegant solution is the carbon tax. Uh, and the reason is today we are facing a major uh, climate crisis. Uh, we've seen wildfires in California and just so many phenomena across the world um, uh, of global warming. And um, we have to do something about it. And the carbon tax is a way to discourage companies uh, and people from you know, emitting so much carbon. And it has the added benefit of bringing in revenue. And so one of the uh, interesting ways that a small UBI could be financed is uh, through a carbon tax. So you put a carbon tax, which uh, addresses the environmental issue. And at the same time, it gets you revenue and you just give back the money on a per capita basis uh, to everybody, which it's a, it's a very elegant solution. And I also want to point out that it's a progressive solution because um, people, the richer people are and the more carbon they consume. Think about it. They have more cars, they fly more, they have a bigger house that they heat, etc. So there's a strong correlation with income. Therefore, if you're higher up the income distribution, you end up paying a lot more tax than the benefit that you get from you know, the universal benefit. And so you know, a simulation in the US, for example, shown that 70% of um, households, the bottom 70%, would actually gain on net uh, from a scheme like this, because the rebate that they get, the kind of small UBI, is bigger 
than the cost that they have to pay uh, through higher taxes. So to me, that's a very promising uh, form of financing, and you could broaden it more broadly to any environmental harm tax, you know, just, not just carbon, but there might be other things that we want to uh, disincentivize as far as uh, uh, polluting the environment or uh, getting uh, non-renewable resources out of where they are. Stop that. We can tax them much more heavily and use you know, the revenue. Uh, for something like a universal basic income, so that this scheme would kind of address two issues at the same time. Like plastics, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, uh, the, these ideas uh, are obviously very easy to grasp in North America, Western Europe, some other parts of the world, because there is a context within which all of this could be done. It's basically, as you said, a matter of political support. There are other parts of the world where it's far less obvious how this could be done. Um, and the barriers are not just political and social, uh, but sometimes very practical. For instance, uh, we know this from our UNESCO work, in many African countries, there's no even clear idea of who the citizens of a country are because there's no adequate civil registration. So if you tried to set up UBI, probably 25, 30 or more percent of the population uh, would be unreachable. Now, there are some responses to that, including innovative responses using uh, mobile phone technology, for instance, to circumvent the limitations of civil registration. But still, there are challenges in the global south, where, after all, uh, the majority of the world's population live. Um, so would your message be um, experiment successfully where it's possible and that will show feasibility, including for others? Or should we turn that around and maybe say, perhaps we should work as a matter of international development cooperation where it's most difficult in right. order to ensure that it doesn't remain just a luxury good of another kind, something that only rich countries can afford? I know that's a trick question because it, it doesn't really make sense at one level, but please. Well, actually, I think universal basic income is easier than many other things you could do. Uh, in, a, in a developing country context, uh, because it's, as you said, people might not be registered, or even if we know they exist, we don't know enough about them. So trying to target something uh, and the people having to show could be a high bar, which means that fewer people are covered by the program. So I, I'd say that particularly in a developing country context, UBI is especially appealing because, again, we don't need to jump through all these hoops as long as you have some form of ID that's enough, you know, that's all you need. You don't need to prove your income and, and the like. So that makes it so much easier administratively than other forms of social support that are conditional on various things that therefore the person to benefit would have to demonstrate uh, those conditions. Also on the financing side, certainly if it's some, uh, you know, financing capacity of course tends to grow with development. So it'd be harder for developing countries to have a very large UBI. But I don't think it's impossible to start something small, especially with something akin to a carbon tax or a pollution tax. And the reason is most countries have something like a sales tax. This is one of the, the ones that are relatively easier to levy. And you could modulate that depending on the typical carbon content or pollution content of different categories of goods and services. And that would, increase revenue, and then you could uh, rebate said revenue to people on a per capita basis without any conditions. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's actually not that hard 
and you know it could be tried and i know that for example uh, in india they have a number of uh, programs that are somewhat similar uh, and it's a huge population a lot of uh, you know unbanked people and so on and so forth and they're still able uh, to deliver that so i think there's a lot of lessons uh, to be learned from similar existing programs that could be impl implemented in developing countries so i really don't think it's a luxury good in fact this kind of scheme being simpler uh, would be much easier to administer thank you um and then more speculatively perhaps i i really understand the logic for um using environmental externalities as a lever because it, it makes such obvious win-win sense and i tend to agree with you but i'm going to pretend not to um just for the purposes of the discussion um and just ask whether you have um, other ideas, either experiments that you've studied or read about, or things that are speculated about, even, they, even if they haven't been tried. And one I'm thinking of in particular, uh, again, um, sorry to sound very French, uh, thinking back to the 2017 presidential election campaign, is the idea of uh, taxing robots. In other words, finding uh, some kind of mechanism by which job destruction would create um, the resources through taxing the owners of intellectual property and machines, basically, uh, to fund the universal income that would compensate for the job losses. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, or perhaps on other even more, even uh, more imaginative schemes? Right. So I I am personally not a fan of the so-called robot tax uh, because it's very hard to define robots. Uh, so therefore, it leaves the field open to a lot of tax evasion, um, creative accounting, and also a lot of innovation could actually benefit labor, uh, you know, and it really depends what sort of innovation it is. And, and the problem is that a policy like this would have to rely on policymakers being able to distinguish between this new technology you know, is labor substituting, basically it replaces labor versus this one is like labor enhancing. And again, a lot of technologies end up ultimately creating jobs. For example, one famous studies look at uh, ATMs, uh, so, you know, automatic telemachines where you can get your cash from a machine. You might think that that kills jobs. And yes, it, it you know, killed the task of handing out cash. But actually, it made people go to the bank more and ultimately banking jobs increase, just as one example. So it's very hard to predict for sure whether XYZ technological innovation robot is going to be bad for labor or not. Um, and therefore, I don't think it's, I think it's a, it's a potentially harmful policy that, you know, might slow down innovation, including the one that is actually positive uh, for, uh, for society. Uh, instead, I think uh, a better idea, uh, but that's obviously a tall order, is the wealth tax. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the wealth tax pushed in particular by Thomas Piketty, who, by the way, was my PhD advisor, so full disclaimer here. Um, but, you know, the idea of a, of a wealth tax as one of the avenues to finance a UBI is really appealing. Uh, because uh, wealth inequality is much greater than income inequality. So if we want to reduce inequality uh, and go towards a more equal society, uh, having a wealth tax and UBI, we, kinda, we are kind of fighting the war on both sides. We are reducing inequality uh, in wealth 
while allowing everybody to uh, count on an unconditional uh, stream of income. And that, that is something that, in that sense, I think is particularly uh, appealing. And in fact, Thomas Piketty, in his latest books, you know, proposes something quite similar by saying we should, you know, give every person a certain capital to start in life, which is pretty close to a UBI. We can debate, you know, should the person get it as a regular payment or a one-off? But in the end, it's a very similar idea. You know, we tax wealth and we redistribute to everybody on an equal basis. Again, back to the idea of equal opportunity so that everybody can have an amount of income that they can count on to propulse them towards whatever it is that they want to do in life. Uh, thank you very much for uh, this discussion about financing the universal basic income, which I think uh, has certainly convinced me, the audience will react and tell us, that financing isn't the problem. Creating the conditions of political acceptability for the financing might be, but it's not about money. It's a pleasure to continue uh, the discussion on universal basic income and its implications. And what I'd like to do in uh, this segment of our conversation um, is talk to you about the kinds of knowledge and data that will be needed to achieve the policy objectives that we've discussed in uh, previous podcasts, in particular creating both the technical, financial and socio-political uh, feasibility and sustainability of um, a universal basic income. And in that respect, um, which goes to the heart of our mission here in UNESCO in the uh, social and human sciences sector to connect research from the social and human sciences to the needs of policymakers, the first question that I'd like to answer, ask you is really a very simple one. How much do we know about the real world experiments on UBI, including the uh, COVID period improvisations? Do we have a solid evidence base to make judgments about what works and what doesn't? So we know a lot about the individual reactions to getting an unconditional uh, cash transfer. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, I'll talk more about, you know, as you know, we'll uh, discuss specific aspects. What we know less about is uh, the, the what it takes to scale up. So, you know, if, if you don't just have a small scale experiment or, you know, a few people receiving this and then we study them and we can see what happens for them, but what would it take and what would be the effect if you extend this to the, to the whole of society? And there might be both positive effects, uh, including, for example, um, economic stimulus, because as everybody receives this money, there's more spending and that can create jobs. Uh, and in fact, my work has shown that that's an effect that has uh, likely happened in a place like Alaska that has a form of universal basic income. But it could also potentially lead to new challenges and things to, to think about, like the interactions between the universal basic income and some existing uh, programs, for example, that depend on income. So there's a lot of aspects that are more kind of macro and scaling up that are not fully understood. But I think we do know quite well what the effects are on the individuals who receive a universal basic income. There's been a lot of uh, international attention um, for the experiment in Finland, partly because its experimental design was very explicit and, um, and quite methodologically sophisticated, and partly simply because it attracted a lot of attention. Um, and the discussion has been sometimes rather confusing 
because different people are claiming to draw completely opposite conclusions from the same rather small-scale experiments. Obviously, this doesn't bear on the scaling issue because it only concerned 2,000 people, if I remember correctly. But uh, how, how do you judge uh, the findings of that particular experiment? Uh, what, what's the key message that one should take from it? So, you know, first of all, it's important to note that the Finnish experiment was uh, indeed on a you know, limited population, but even more importantly, it was a population of unemployed people who receive unemployment insurance. So it's not only a small sample, but a very particular uh, kind of sample of long-term unemployed. Um, and instead of receiving classic unemployment insurance benefits, which would mean that if they take a job, the benefit is going to be taken away from them. Instead, they receive this unconditional cash, meaning that even if they go back to work, you know, they still get to, uh, uh, to keep the money. And basically, there wasn't much effect on going back to work. They were hoping that this way, these people would finally go back to work, but you know, there just wasn't much effect. The, I'm also an expert, by the way, on unemployment insurance. The way I interpret this is that you chose a sample of people who are long-term unemployed. There's a reason why they're long-term unemployed. These people have serious trouble finding a job. So changing a little bit their incentive and their financial incentive at the margin probably is just not a strong enough you know, policy lever uh, to help these people find a job. Again, because they were selected to be uh, among the long-term uh, unemployed. So I, I don't think that that study tells us a whole lot about uh, basic income actually tells us more about unemployment insurance and how the unemployed, you know, react to uh, various uh, kinds of benefits. Uh, so, so, you know, and of course I can see how people would interpret it negatively, but again, I think it's easy to miss the point of what that experiment was about. So yes, it was unconditional cash, but again, it was for a population of long-term uh, unemployed uh, Finnish people, and that's a little bit special. Um, so you know, that perhaps brings us more generally to what do we know about the impact of UBI on work, right? So the key, uh, there's, there's two things there. The first one is that if you replace universal basic income with means-tested, uh, sorry, you replace means-tested transfers with UBI, that at some level has should increase work. The reason is with a means-tested transfer, once you reach a certain income, the whole transfer is taken away from you. So that creates a strong disincentive not to go above that threshold and work more, lest your benefit is going to be taken away. With a basic income, you erase that problem since you can keep the benefit even if you work. And that was a key reason why the scheme was popular among technocrats uh, in the 70s. Okay, So that's, that's number one. But at the same time, with a universal basic income, that just means generally people have more income. And uh, we call that in economics the income effect, meaning that the higher your income that is not from work, you know, you have some income from somewhere else, and we can expect you to work less. And the reason is we assume that people mostly work to make money. So if you already have a chunk of money, at the margin, there's less incentive to work extra uh, to make that money in order to consume. Now, what does the evidence show? Well, it turns out if you look at, across a, a broad range of, of studies that the impact on work is quite small when there is one. So when there is one, you see that a 10% increase in um, benefits 
leads to a perhaps 1% decrease in hours of work. So it's not a very large effect when it is observed. But in many cases, you don't see anything at all. And so one example of this um, is in many developing countries, they run uh, randomized control trials uh, of universal basic income types of transfers, meaning that they are unconditional cash. They're not really universal because it's a small sample, but no effect on work, no effect. In, so in all poor countries, we haven't seen you know, any disincentive to work, which I think is fundamental for our audience to know. In a poor country, there's no such thing. Like, you know, all of the evidence points towards the fact that if you have this income from something like an unconditional cash transfer, it doesn't reduce uh, work. Um, the evidence where it might reduce work comes from much richer countries uh, and with, you know, much larger amounts. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really something that's uh, important to keep in mind. My own work in Alaska has looked at Alaska in the U.S. where people get uh, unconditional cash once a year. We compare Alaska to similar states after the introduction of this program, and we find that the employment level in Alaska is exactly the same as in the other states that it's comparable to. In other terms, there was no impact on employment. And so, you know, we interpret this as saying, yes, maybe some people wanted to work less, but on the other hand, the cash stimulated job creation because people spent in restaurants and retail and so on. So that created jobs. So these two effects probably uh, cancel each other out. So broadly speaking, the impact of an unconditional cash transfer on work is small or non-existent. And if we're talking about developing countries, mostly non-existent. So I, I just don't think that this is a major concern uh, in implementing a universal basic income. Thanks. And of course, from a sort of sociological or anthropological perspective, you might even want to challenge the idea that people work uh, solely to earn income, uh, because work also provides a status and uh, self-esteem and recognition by others and uh, social networking and so on, which are intangible but non-trivial benefits that people are actually uh, quite attached to. Um, and, and this is consistent with what you say from, a, from an economic perspective, which is reassuring because right. there's sometimes a tendency in the social and human sciences to set up this very rigid divide between economics and the other uh, social sciences. I'm convinced that there's no such divide and it's nice to share the screen uh, with someone uh, who's along the same lines. So given um, this situation, uh, given the wealth of real world experiments that are being performed now, not always in a very controlled way because they're policy improvisations to deal with an emergency, there's going to be a lot of work for researchers to do now and in the future to make sense of uh, what all of this means. What would you regard as the key things that research communities obviously, particularly in economics, but you might want to comment on other disciplines as well, should be thinking about uh, so that maybe they can start convincing uh, funding agencies to um, uh, provide the support necessary for the studies. What, what would the key things uh, be that you would want to see done starting in 2021? Right. So there are three things that I think would be interesting. So first, the first one is not about economics, but it's about politics. Uh, and I think there's a lot of interesting questions with UBI and politics. Uh, recent work uh, by uh, Randall, Aki, and co-authors has shown that uh, when you give people a universal basic income, and this is based on um, Native Americans in the US who receive a form of basic income, it increases political participation. 
And to me, that's a really interesting idea, especially if we connect basic income with citizenship, that this can end up being a, a tool through which we can enhance citizenship. I think saying more about that and what are the channels and how it affects uh, political participation, opinion, and the like, I think is very important to better understand uh, how that goes. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two is the stimulus effect. So while we have some evidence that uh, both, I, I told about the story about Alaska, but also in Kenya, there's been an experiment that shows a very strong stimulus effect uh, of a universal basic income, where if you give a universal basic income to a village, sort of the incomes in the village rise. So there's a you know, stimulus, stimulus of economic activity. Uh, but what I think is not super well understood is the exact channels through which that happens and how that's different from other types of stimulus that governments typically do during a crisis. So giving cash straight to the people, how is that different from building infrastructure or whatever other you know, program that uh, the public might decide to do in order to stimulate the economy? So that's, that's, that's number two. Like, What's the stimulus effect? What are the channels? How big? How does it differ with you know, other uh, stimulus programs? And the third, I think, is the issue of uh, prices. So one concern that people have is if you give a UBI, it might increase prices. Uh, and of course, this may or may not materialize because it depends on uh, the elasticity of supply. So, well, that's a technical terms, but what that means is, you know, if you have more income and you're trying to buy something, if the thing that you're trying to buy, it's easy to produce more of that. That means it's very elastic and prices will tend not to increase. It's just there's more demand, more production occurs and the prices stay more or less the same. But if it so turns out that it's pretty hard to ramp up production of whatever it is that you're trying to buy, that could increase prices because now everybody's eager to buy and there's not enough of the stuff and that, that then will, uh, will increase prices. And we have some evidence on this uh, that's quite reassuring uh, from developing uh, countries looking at programs like that. And what they have shown looking at the price of food, which is quite important uh, in, in villages, is that having extra cash typically doesn't increase the price of food. It only can do so in the most remote villages. And again, that makes sense. Like, think about it. If you're in a really remote village and now people have more income and want to buy more food, it's not that easy to like bring in more food uh, over there. And that, that puts some pressure on prices and you know, the price of food increases. But for most cases, as long as the place isn't particularly remote, they just don't see uh, a price effect. So I think we need more evidence. There's only a couple of studies in this area. We, we really don't know enough. But so far, the evidence we do have is fairly encouraging that in most circumstances, um, the UBI, the unconditional cash, is not going to increase uh, prices. And that's because this goes with my second topic, which was the stimulus. So presumably, speculatively, it seems like what's happening is that the money is actually getting spent, creating jobs, producing more. And as long as that happens, prices won't increase because there's more stuff for people to buy. 
So, you know, it's not like more money chasing the same amount of goods. Instead, it's more money and more goods and services being produced. So I think sort of interact, understanding those macro effects uh, is quite uh, interesting for, for research. And that can really help us inform the scale up. Like, no, aspects like how would this work if we did it on a bigger scale rather than just looking at how it affects particular individuals who receive it. And I suppose you could argue that in a basically deflationary period, which we are in, where the only things booming are the prices of luxury assets, basically, in the last few years, I'm not talking about the pandemic, I'm talking before, um, there's probably quite a lot of, uh, shall we say, spur capacity in the system, almost by definition. Uh, so the ability to absorb the stimulus without uh, simply creating inflationary pressure must exist. Uh, it, it, it's consistent with what we know about the state of the economy in December 2019. Right, that's, prob that's probably true, indeed. So, so this this doesn't seem like it would be a big problem, but I think from an academic perspective, it'd be interesting to yeah. have more evidence on this. I'm not too worried, sort of, in terms of what's my projection on this issue. However, just to you know deepen our knowledge, I do feel like more evidence would be welcome. Thank you very much. So my final question is in some ways the most difficult uh, because it's not simply a question about academic expertise. Uh, obviously, as UNESCO, uh, we need to talk to our governments. And indeed, uh, we're currently conducting a whole series of um, ministerial meetings with governments in various parts of the world to discuss what they see as the key social policy challenges coming from the pandemic and how we can help with our science mandate uh, to support action in this area. So we'll have opportunities to pass messages. Um, what would you like to say to governments? And of course, you might want to differentiate between different parts of the world because the messages can be very contextual. Um, but if there were, say, three key things that we need to pass on uh, based on your expertise um, on uh, universal basic income and related issues, what, what would it be? What, what uh, messages do you want us to be the bearers of? Right. So. The, the, the first one, perhaps, is that something like a universal cash program is especially uh, desirable in countries that don't already have an extensive social safety net. Um, and in countries where implementing that due to administrative capacity might be difficult, uh, it's especially appealing to have a universal program like that. Um, the second is you shouldn't worry about work disincentives. Most likely the scheme is actually going to create uh, jobs for the stimulus effect once you implement it at, uh, at scale. Certainly the effect of, on work, if any, is going to be quite modest. And that's you know, just important to keep in mind. And uh, third, Universal basic income, because it's the same for everybody, seems like it's not a, a progressive policy, that it doesn't really help the poor. But that's a misconception because it really depends on how you finance it. And as long as your financing side is progressive, you can make it as progressive as you want because what you want to look at is not just the amount that everybody receives from this program, but the amount that people receive minus the tax uh, or the contribution they make towards the scheme. And so it's very easy to make the scheme very progressive, as progressive as you want, depending on the program that you want to implement. So even though on the face of it, it looks like this program doesn't reduce inequality, it can, and it can do so drastically, depending on the financing scheme that you choose. And again, the more progressive the scheme and the more it's going to reduce inequality.
Thank you. Those are clear, crisp, relevant messages. Uh, we'll build them into our future policy briefings and uh, see how uh, ministers react. Uh, I suspect the third is probably in some ways the most challenging because as we said earlier, many of the obstacles are political rather than technical or financial uh, or even economic in a general sense. And I, I think you gave a very clear answer, but let's see if it plays with um, with a governmental audience, which obviously doesn't thinks about these issues with a lot of different considerations in mind. Anyway, it was uh, really a great pleasure talking to you, uh, Joanna. Do you have any closing words that you'd like to uh, leave with the audience, uh, not necessarily on the issues we just discussed. If you want to say something a bit broader, please go ahead. Well, I mean, it was a pleasure discussing here. And, uh, you know, I'm always very keen on and interested in communicating to a broader audience about new policies and what could be tried. Um, and I think, you know, the, the policy realm, sometimes, you know, you have to be informed by evidence but sometimes you just have to jump in and do what, what you think is plausibly correct, because oftentimes there is no ironclad evidence on exactly what's going to happen, because every time is a little bit different. So, you know, yes, be informed, look at what has happened before so you can have a reasonable expectation about what would happen. But sometimes you're just going to go and do it. And then we can evaluate, you know, and, and see what has happened. So it sort of also can serve as a, a vehicle for learning more. Yola Marinesco, thank you very much for spending time uh, with UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us. And to everyone watching this podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll uh, join us for more uh, great content on the Inclusive Policy Lab in the future. My name is John Crowley from UNESCO. Goodbye. Thank you.